Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project. By me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today as we meet a saint who guided the church toward mercy when no one else could. Name, Thascius Cecilius Cyprianus, or Cyprian. Life, around 210 to 258 AD. Status, Saint. Feast, September 14th. The church in Carthage could hardly believe the news. Thascius Cyprianus had become a Christian. And yes, he was one of those Cypriani. Centuries ago, Rome and Carthage had been enemies, but then Rome had conquered the city, rebuilt it, and made it thrive. Within Roman Carthage, wealthy families, like the Cipriani, now held power. Cyprianus Sr. had been a senator of the city. His son had studied philosophy and law, and then become a powerful man in his own right. Now, this subtle thinker, this rich and powerful pillar of the community, had converted to Christianity. He was even going by Thascius Cecilius Cyprianus in honor of the man who had finally persuaded him to change his life. It was the year 246 AD, and Christianity was growing in the Roman Empire. It hadn't been so uncommon for new religions to come from the East, delight, or scandalize the Romans for a while, and then fade into the background. Christianity had started out looking like just another religion. But, for some reason, it was still growing, and the Roman upper classes were curious, and a little worried. Thascius Cecilius Cyprianus, or Cyprian, as we know him today, had been curious about the new religion. He had found the priest Cecilius, probably expecting an intellectual sparring match and little more. But then Cyprian had the experience that many smart people have when they start really looking into Christianity. That although the central claims of our faith are so simple that a child can grasp them, a wise man can spend a lifetime trying to comprehend them. Something in what he was hearing put Cyprian on the spot. He found, as St. Augustine would later put it, You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That is what happened to Cyprian. It wasn't easy for him. Later, writing to Donatus, the bishop in Carthage, Cyprian told the story. Cecilius had started to persuade him faster, perhaps, than even the old priest realized. The problem was that Cyprian was used to being powerful, respected, and rich. 
While I was still lying in darkness and gloomy night, I used to regard it as a difficult matter, and especially as difficult in respect of my character at that time, that a man should be capable of being born again. How, said I, is such a conversion possible? That there should be a sudden and rapid divestment of all which, either innate in us, has hardened in the corruption of our material nature, or, acquired by us, has become inveterate by long-accustomed use. These things have become deeply and radically ingrained within us. When does he learn thrift who has been used to liberal banquets and sumptuous feasts? And he who has been glittering in gold and purple, and has been celebrated for his costly attire, when does he reduce himself to ordinary and simple clothing? One who has felt the charm of the fasces, i.e. the power of life and death, and of civic honors, shrinks from becoming a mere private and inglorious citizen. Cyprian was a good enough philosopher to be familiar with the idea that wisdom frees a man from certain desires. Growing wise is supposed to be like growing up. A little boy imagines that when he has money the way his dad does, he'll buy all the toys at the toy store, or all the candy at the candy shop. But when the boy grows up and can buy all those things, he doesn't, because now his desires are those of a young man and not a boy. Philosophers taught that the wise man is similarly freed of many attachments. The wise man is like Socrates, who used to enjoy spending time in the market, looking at all the items he no longer desired. It sounds good in theory, but Cyprian found it daunting in real life. From outside the church, it seemed to Cyprian that he could never give up his life. And yet, he was being drawn in. Eventually, Cyprian realized the only way to find out if it could be done was to try. To his delight, he found that what Cecilius had been telling him was true. When the soul, in its gaze into heaven, has recognized its author, it rises higher than the sun, and far transcends all this earthly power, and begins to be that which it believes itself to be. Cyprian gave away most of his money. He entered into the Christian community humbly as their newest member. He didn't dress like a rich man anymore, but he didn't insult his fellow Christians by pretending to be poor either. He was modest. But this isn't the story of a rich man who converted and lived happily ever after. God had brought Cyprian into the church to help steer it through a storm that was just out of view over the horizon, a storm in which Cyprian had everything to lose and everything to gain. As Cyprian was becoming a Christian, the Roman Empire was gearing up to celebrate. It had been a thousand years since the founding of the city of Rome, at least the way the Romans counted it. The Emperor Philip, a Syrian who is remembered by history as Philip the Arab, led a great celebration. But great public celebrations usually also lead to reflection. If Rome had lasted a thousand years, people wondered, would she make it another thousand? It didn't seem likely. As Cyprian explained to Donatus, the corruption was obvious to those at the top. That was part of what had made Cyprian think that there must be more to life than this. Public morality had all but collapsed. There were massive wealth disparities, 
and the rich did not care for the poor. The society was so unstable that even being rich didn't give you much security. Think you that even those are secure, that those at least are safe with some stable permanence among the chaplets of honor and vast wealth, whom, in the glitter of royal palaces, the safeguard of watchful arms surrounds? They have greater fear than others. A man is constrained to dread no less than he is dreaded. Even as he does not allow his inferiors to feel security, it is inevitable that he himself should want the sense of security. How had things gone so wrong in Rome? The Christians thought of the corruption as moral. But some pagans wondered whether the growing force of Christianity had something to do with Rome's slide into degeneracy. These pagans didn't have the emperor's ear. The emperor Philip the Arab was reasonably well disposed toward the Christians. Some said he was secretly a Christian himself. Cyprian's talents helped him to find a place in the church. He became a deacon and then a priest. In 249, Bishop Donatus died, and although he had not been a Christian long, Cyprian was chosen to succeed him. Meanwhile, in Rome, Philip the Arab was dealing with the menace of the Goths. They were a powerful tribe who had sailed and marched down from their northern homelands, and now they were on the borders of the Roman Empire. Philip had chosen a senator to lead out an army and confront this menace. The man's name was Decius. When Decius met the Gothic warbands, he was victorious. But Decius's victory had an unexpected consequence. His troops acclaimed him emperor, and soon Philip's general was headed back south as a rival. When Philip and Decius met in battle, Decius won again. And so it was that, as Cyprian was becoming a bishop, Decius was becoming the emperor of Rome. And Decius would not be so well disposed toward Christians as the man he had replaced. Decius might not fully have understood the Christian religion, but he knew one thing about Christians. Christians cannot worship other gods. We can't pray to them, venerate them, and we certainly can't sacrifice to them. So Decius mandated that everyone in the Roman Empire, every single person, had to participate in a pagan sacrifice. The sacrifice was presented as something done on behalf of the emperor, a way for you to show your public spiritedness. When you did your sacrifice, an official would witness it and would certify that you had done your part. The only exemption was granted to the Jews. For everyone else, the penalty for non-compliance was death. Suddenly, all around the empire, Christians who had been flying under the radar had to decide what to do. Should they stand up and be martyred? Should they comply? Should they run or hide and live in fear of being caught? In Rome, Pope Fabian was among the first to be martyred. It was pretty obvious that he was not going to perform the pagan sacrifice, and the Pope and future saint was arrested and taken away. No one stepped up to replace him, and the church carried on without a Pope. Many Christians stood firm, but many did not. Many made the sacrifice, becoming apostates. Carthage was especially bad and there were public attacks on Christians. Cyprian thought the city's Christians needed his guidance, 
so he went into hiding, running the church through letters he mailed to those still in the city. Some accused him of being a coward, but Cyprian's view was that a wise man is willing to be a martyr, but does not go out of his way to get martyred. The purge went on for one horrible year. Emperor Decius had risen to his current rank by winning a battle against the Goths. But that war was far from won. In the same year he had begun his persecution of Christians, Decius had to face the Goths again. After some initial success, Decius moved to stop a mass of Gothic warriors and walked right into a trap. He died along with his son and heir, becoming the first Roman emperor to die in battle with a foreign enemy. The persecution of Christians was over, for now. The Decian persecution had only lasted a year, yet it was different from other persecutions that had come before. It didn't matter who you were, how remote you were, you had to make a choice. And the consequences of that choice carried over after the persecution was finished. What should happen to the lapsed, as they were being called, to those Christians who had folded under the pressure and complied? Now that there was no longer a persecution, many were ashamed of their little certificates. They wanted to return to the church. Some churches simply readmitted those who had turned their backs during the persecution. But many of those who had endured were not feeling particularly welcoming, and that was understandable enough. The lapsed Christians had rejected the Christian faith when they had sacrificed to idols. Many thought that they should no longer be welcome in Christian communities. The debate began to solidify around two figures in Rome. One was Cornelius, a nobleman who had become a priest. He thought that through repentance and penance, a lapsed Christian could rejoin the church. The other figure was Novation. He was a former Stoic philosopher, and he still seemed to have the rigidity of the Stoic school. God could, and perhaps he would, forgive the lapsed, but someone who had sacrificed to idols could never return to full membership in the church, said Novation. Such a person could never receive the Eucharist, or at least not until a priest performed the last rites as he was dying. Neither of these views was obviously foolish. For my part, in the immediate aftermath of the purge, I can imagine being swayed to either side. As the year wore on, both Cornelius and Novation saw themselves as candidates for being Pope. That choice would determine the way the Church would handle grave sins. The way of Cornelius promised forgiveness, but he needed allies. And that was the moment that Bishop Cyprian had been prepared for. Cyprian was probably angry with the lapsed. I'm sure he felt as betrayed as anyone by those who had turned their backs on the church. But Cyprian also knew that the role of a man, and of a manly saint, is to set aside resentment and to judge fairly and wisely. And so, from his base in Carthage, Cyprian employed all of his eloquence, all the finesse of his legal mind and his knowledge of the scriptures, to make the case for mercy. Could the church forgive lapsed Christians? Obviously, yes, Cyprian argued. Christ himself had told Peter that what he forgave on earth would be forgiven in heaven. Now the key, Cyprian argued, 
to understanding why the lapsed could not just stroll back in the door was understanding what apostasy meant. It meant giving up the promises of Christ. It meant spiritual death. That was why the lapsed could not simply go back to church as they had been. To them, Cyprian said, For far be it from the mercy of God and his uncontrolled might to suffer the number of the lapsed to be called to the church. Since it is written, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Yes, the lapsed were spiritually dead. But that fact made them the very people that Christians should be trying to save. What did Christ stand for, if not bringing life to the world? For we, indeed, desire that all may be made alive. And we pray that, by our supplications and groans, they may be restored to their original state. The path to new life was one of repentance, penance, prayer, humility, and the fear of God. In the end, it was Cornelius who became Pope. Novation was outraged and declared himself a rival Pope. His rigid view crystallized into the heresy we call Novationism, the view that the Church cannot forgive the sin of apostasy, and perhaps cannot forgive other grave sins as well. His followers called themselves Catharoi, pure ones, or if you like, Puritans. It was a strain of thought that the Church would battle again and again. In their various guises, the Puritans always wanted to make men into angels, only to turn them into monsters instead. Cyprian, though, had risen to the moment. When the church was in danger of forgetting mercy, he was there to counsel and steady it and support the future saint, Pope Cornelius. That's one reason that Cyprian and Cornelius are often depicted together. There would be other persecutions, and the question of lapsed Christians would continue to trouble the early church. But the mercy that Cyprian and Cornelius showed would be there as a starting point. Cyprian used the years after the Decian persecution to rebuild the church. Then, Carthage was hit by a plague. People died in the streets and many fled the city. Cyprian set an example by personally helping the sick, encouraging Christians to do so as well. And I think, reading between the lines of an account of his life by Pontius the deacon, that this was the moment that many, Pontius included, finally realized that Cyprian hadn't been a coward when he went into hiding during the persecution of Decius. He wasn't scared. He was practical. And given the way he stayed to help the sick, he might also be a saint. Emperors came and went. In 253, the Emperor Valerian took power. Although a pagan, he was at first sympathetic to the Christians, but that sympathy did not last. Soon, the purges began again. Cyprian was arrested and put in prison. As he waited in prison, Cyprian continued encouraging the church in Carthage with letters. Cyprian's advice and his attitude hadn't changed. Don't sacrifice yourself unnecessarily. Don't jump up and seek martyrdom. But if it comes to you, if you are called upon to die, it is important, Cyprian said, that 
every one of us may think less of death than of immortality, and dedicated to the Lord with full faith and entire courage, may rejoice rather than fear in this confession, wherein they know that the soldiers of God and Christ are not slain, but crowned. Deacon Pontius watched the trial and saw Cyprian's joy as he faced his own death. In this final test, Cyprian seemed to become especially cheerful. After a brutal interrogation, a soldier offered to give Cyprian some fresh clothes, since the ones he was wearing were bloody and soaked. Cyprian told him he wasn't too worried about catching cold. And Cyprian proved to be a philosopher to the end. Cyprian imitated Socrates, who offered a sacrifice to the healing god Asclepius on the occasion of his own death. Socrates suspected that he was not suffering, but gaining in death, and Cyprian was certain of the same thing. Not to be outdone, Cyprian asked his companions to tip the executioner. In the end, Cyprian made it look easy. Shall I triumph at his victory? Pontius the deacon wondered. Much and excessively I exult at his glory, but still more do I grieve that I remained behind.